Welcome to November 2nd, 2021. This is episode 14 of the More Math for More People podcast. Cheers! Hello, I'm Joel. And I'm Misty. And this is More Math for More People, brought to you by CPM Educational Program. This podcast supports middle and high school teachers with best practices, relevant research, helpful hints and tips, and anything else that randomly comes to our minds. We hope you find this podcast both entertaining and informative for your math teaching practice. Boom. So, Joel. Yeah. What day is it today? It's National Deviled Egg Day. National Deviled Egg Day. I'm kind of emphasizing egg, not eggs. I I heard that in there. <laughs> so national, de- so wow. Mm-hmm. Deviled eggs, I feel like are one of those things that people either love or hate. There's not a lot of middle ground with deviled eggs. I would probably agree with that. Mm-hmm. And some would not like it from texture, maybe, or some mm-hmm. taste, of course, mm-hmm. things like that. If people don't like eggs, they wouldn't like that, deviled eggs. Probably not. Though, I feel like when I was a kid, I liked deviled eggs more than just hard-boiled eggs. Hmm. Because? Well, okay, so my memory of hard-boiled eggs, um, mostly from like Easter, of course. Mm-hmm. But we also had hard-boiled eggs at other times. But sure. the, the yolk part of the hard-boiled eggs was cooked really well (laughs) really really well like i think we simmered the eggs for about 20 minutes and then put the cold water on them yeah (laughs) so they were very well done and so if we took those deviled eggs then and took Mm -hmm. the centers out and mushed it up with a bunch of other delicious things then it was much more delightful to eat i bet because we were also, if you were going to eat a hard-boiled egg, you were required to eat the entire hard-boiled eggs. You couldn't just eat it. Well, you can't save it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, and you could just sort of away. You couldn't like, I'm That's, just going to eat the white you. part and not eat the yolk. Like we had to eat the yolk. And the way you're describing it sounds like it'd be like almost like a dry powder. It was really you dry. you opened it up at it that very point. Dry. Yeah. <laughs> and when I became an adult, I learned that you could cook hard-boiled eggs very differently and that the yolk could be soft and yes. actually delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. We, we usually always had a hard-boiled egg in the fridge at all times for a snack or something. Really? Mm-hmm. Just one? Well, like a container. <laughs> but if it got down to one, then we had to well, make yeah. some more. You would have at least one. I got you. Yeah. I got you. And the, de- the deviled eggs, though, I also think are delicious. And there's so many ways that you can make them. It's crazy. Yes. I know. I think we're going to do our study team and teaching strategy around how to make deviled eggs, right? We are indeed. Okay. And what's our strategy today? I think our strategy today is a pears check. Pears check. Yeah. Okay. Which will take some explaining. Yeah. And then, as anything, when we do it as an example, that helps with the explaining, I hope. That's the, that's the idea, right? I hope so. <laughs> that's why we're doing this. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> we hope it's effective. That's right. So pears check is where you have, you're in pairs. That makes sense. And team member number one writes down as team member number two explains the problem. So this could be a math problem. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it around deviled eggs today. Yep. But that sort of thing. And then 
Team member one will ask clarifying questions as team member two is explaining the problem. Once that process is done, that pair exchanges with another pair, Mm -hmm. and then there's some feedback there. So if you agree with what the other pair did, you would say, check, great, sounds good. And if Mm -hmm. you disagree, you would have to try and figure out what exactly went wrong. All right, so we're going to we're going to be a pair. Yep. And you're going to describe how to make deviled eggs. Yes. And I'm going to write it down and I will ask for clarifications or questions as I'm writing it if I don't understand what you're telling me. Okay, yes, I agree. Okay, hold on one second. I get ready to write. Okay. Okay, go ahead. You ready? Yes. So to make a deviled egg, first you have to hard boil the eggs. So I've got hard Boil mm-hmm. the eggs. That's right. Okay. And so I like to put it kind of just in a single layer in a pan there, and I put cold water on it to start. Okay. Single layer cold water. And then I bring that up to a boil. Bring to boil. Once it's boiled, I actually go about the 10 minute, but 10 to 14 minutes is kind of what you Boil know. for 10 minutes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Boil, like a uh, hard boil, simmer boil, like, does that matter? Um, that's a good question. What, I don't, I don't bring it down to a simmer. I keep it high heat. Okay. High heat. Okay. Once that's done, I rinse under cold water. Rinse under cold water. Okay. Mm-hmm. Rinse. And, and that way I can kind of, once the cold water is there, I kind of get the shell off and, and kind of. Oh, you're going to peel them right now. Kind of peel okay. them right now. Peel. Eggs. Okay. And then, this is kind of the fun part, I think. We had talked about the yolks and things, but we, I slice them in half and take out those yolks with a spoon and put them in a bowl. Slice in half. Does it matter which way you slice them in half? I slice them lengthwise. I think that's a traditional way. Lengthwise. It would be interesting, though, to see what would happen if to cut them the width way and just see maybe you get yeah, different. Yeah, like one tiny side and one fat yeah. side, but okay. And then you said you put the yolks, put mm-hmm. yolks in bowl. In a bowl. And then okay. just kind of add, I, I really don't do measurements, but I add some mayo, I add some vinegar, I add some mustard, add some I add some mayo. hot sauce. Mayo, vinegar, uh, yeah, yeah, mustard, yeah. salt and pepper. Sauce. That's a lot of things. Hold on. Salt and pepper. And I just mix it all up. I know. I think I can write fast. Hey. You are keeping up really well. No one can read it, but I, I'm writing it very fast. There we go. I hope our partners will be able to read it. Well. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'll, all right. I'm all doing right. my best. I'm doing my best. And JJ and Nikki are on their own. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. And then once that's kind of all mixed together, then just mm-hmm. I try and equally put the mixture back into the sliced eggs. Okay. Equally put in sliced eggs. Mm-hmm. And then okay. I top it off with just a little paprika. Top with a little paprika. And uh, and they're ready to go. And the best thing is you can serve them and eat them right then, or they keep pretty well too. Eat or wait. That's right. Okay, great. Okay, so now we're going to give this to uh, Nikki and JJ. Correct. And they're going to give us their procedure, and we're going to check. Yes. So. Okay. All right, so I have Nikki and JJ's procedure. Okay. So this is what theirs says. Deviled eggs. Mm-hmm. Ingredients. Six hard-cooked eggs, peeled. Three tablespoons mayonnaise or salad dressing. Mm-hmm. One half teaspoon ground mustard. Mm-hmm. One eighth teaspoon salt. Okay. 
eighth teaspoon pepper, paprika, if desired. Gotcha. It says steps. One, cut eggs lengthwise in half. Two, slip out yolks and mash with fork. Three, stir in mayonnaise, mustard, salt, and pepper. Four, fill whites with egg yolk mixture, keeping it lightly. And then lastly, it says cover and refrigerate up to 24 hours. Okay. So what do you think of their procedure? I, uh, on the surface, it sounds really good, but I'm wondering how do they get those hard-cooked eggs? Yeah, so they're, they didn't give the directions on how to make the eggs. Yeah. Maybe they just bought them at the store. Because you can buy already cooked hard-cooked eggs at the store. So That's true. They didn't put those directions. Maybe that's good to clarify, maybe not. I like they put the amounts of the mm-hmm. eggs, like there's six eggs and there's this much stuff that would help with not making them too mayonnaise or too mustardy. That's true, or too salty. Yeah. <laughs> also, okay, so my big question also, though, is they said paprika if desired, but I don't know what they're supposed to do with the paprika. Mm. They didn't say where or when to put the paprika on. Right. Am I mixing it into the egg mixture or am I putting it on? That would be good to clarify. Yeah. Show the reasoning. But otherwise, I think yeah, I like it. It's very, it's very short and concise yeah. and to the yeah. point. And I would try one if they brought them to share in the class. So we're here today with uh, Dr. Judy Kish. She's one of the founding members of CPM. Since 2000, she's been a professor in the Departments of Secondary Education and Mathematics at San Francisco State University where she teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses in mathematics education and research methods. Her research interests are in the areas of mathematics education, particularly classroom discourse, and in teacher research and school change. Dr. Kish holds the title of Founding Director on the Board of Directors for CPM Educational Program, and she's been involved with the company since its inception. So welcome to the podcast, Judy. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time on your busy schedule. So tell us, how did CPM get started? How did, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. We could, you could spend a long time. It really got started um, several years before it started mm-hmm. through a project that we were doing uh, with Tom Sully at UC Davis. And Tom and I were involved in what was called the Northern California Math Project that got a groups of teachers together every summer to share their best teaching ideas and learn some more math and think about teaching math differently, more intensely, so students would understand it and participate and enjoy it. And so what grew out of this is we've worked with K-12 teachers and the teachers stayed involved for several years because they came back as mentors or they came back as teacher researchers or they, they we stayed involved. They did professional development with other teachers. But um turned out that the elementary and middle school teachers were implementing a lot of these ideas, but the high school teachers came back and said, look, you're giving us all of this exciting tasks and these things to do and, and ways that we can engage our students. But we can't do that because the university is sitting there dictating all this content that we have to teach. So if you really want us to do this, you're going to have to help us change the curriculum. And that basically was the grounding that came together behind our getting involved with CPM or creating CPM. At about that same time, California, this was late 1980s, 
California and the nation were in kind of a big reform effort in terms of teaching and learning mathematics, and there was a lot of funding available for various projects, and some came into California, and California advertised that they wanted to support a curriculum project for um, for Algebra Geometry, Algebra 2, for the high school program. And so people started saying, well, you should apply. <laughs> so we did, and uh, and we got funded. And one of the really nice things that is kind of ancillary about it was uh, at the same time, there were other math educators in California whom I knew well, a couple at San Francisco State, I was at Davis, who were also proposing a program. They were our competitors. And we talked, and there could only be one. There was grant money for one program. So we talked, and they were proposing something far more radical, like a totally integrated program that would require a three-year commitment for teachers to get involved in that was much more shaking up the curriculum and task-oriented, whereas what we were proposing we called college prep math. So it was mainly for the top 80% of people is the way we saw it originally. And it was supposed to be change from within. That was our subtitle. It was supposed to be something that an individual teacher with the agreement of their department and school, could go ahead and try out, and it wouldn't interrupt a student's program. They could continue on to their next class, and we thought, do better. So we decided to write mutually supporting letters for these programs, and they both got funded. So that was where we started. So you, you worked with Tom at Davis at that time? Yes, yes. Tom, he was the principal investigator, and I was the director for the program. So. So when did Brian Hoey get involved? Was he involved at the very beginning also? I should also say that the other um, perpetrator was mm-hmm. uh, Elaine Casamatis, who yes. recently passed away. Mm-hmm. But yes, Brian actually was involved in our California math project earlier on and had taken on a number of leadership roles. And so when uh, what happened was we were about three years in to CPM and actually one of the really wonderful things about it is that we initially had, I think it was 27 teachers involved in doing the original first draft of Algebra 1. I don't think Brian was involved in that one, but he was active with the math project, which was running simultaneously. Mm-hmm. But about th- by three years in, we had also, we had worked on revising the first course and writing the second course. And then teachers were starting to hear about these materials. And, and actually it was really funny because we would get threatening emails, um, or, or letters from teachers saying, look, if you don't make these materials your new versions, if you don't include us in this, we're just going to get them from somebody and copy your old materials. <laughs> <laughs> And so we had to do something about making them available to people and expanding our like professional mm-hmm. development effort. And all of a sudden we were growing so fast that the university's paper reproduction <laughs> was having trouble keeping up with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was driving actually at one point Elaine and I had a van load of copies of units because it was printed out unit by unit. And we were Mm -hmm. going to a meeting with our group of teachers in Sacramento. And actually, we were afraid that the van was so overloaded with paper, it was about riding on its axles. (laughs) So we had to to do something about how to print. And we had to get organized. And so Tom came up with this idea of forming a nonprofit corporation. 
And then Brian also got involved in our second proposal to do more with assessment at the same time. And Brian had far more skills in terms of organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tom and I were not great at setting up a business. We really needed somebody who had good organizational skills and the right connections. So there was Brian and and he was perfect. (laughs) That's so cool. Actually, we used a lot of connections through... um, Brian's uh, fellow soccer umpires <laughs> in the Sacramento area to get the uh, nonprofit corporation going. Kind of the underground of the nonprofits there. Yeah, well, it's the, the good old boy networking of one form or another, but it was basically all networking. Yeah. One of my one of my first memories, I think it was the first time I ever met actually you and Tom was uh, the writing project in Davis. And it was like the first day and we were all sitting and Leslie was sort of beginning to tell us what we were going to be doing and different things and so on. And within half hour, 45 minutes of us all sitting there and getting started, you and Tom got into what I would say, I would call an argument. And it was a mathematical (laughs) argument, but it was, it was very much, you were debating something that you both felt very strongly with. And it was really interesting to me because it, it caught me off guard because I was like, Oh my gosh, these are like two of the most important people in CPM and they're arguing. And, but it also really laid this very (laughs) lovely model of how to have discourse when you disagree about ideas and still really be able to be heard and listen to each other and, and move forward and create something, even though you don't, you might see something a little bit differently. And I thought that was really wonderful. That was one of Tom and my favorite, favorite things to do. Is, <laughs> is that, and in fact, at some point, we became aware that we were doing this. Mm-hmm. And then one or the other of us would pretty much do something like that at every new meeting, just to kind of get things started to show it's, it's good to disagree, actually. It's out of these disagreements that actually we reach compromise and we put things together so they work for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's our goal is to get this to work for all, every teacher and every student. Yeah. The foundations of the strategies right there. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I sort of felt out of it, it that Neither of you was really arguing to win. And in fact, it, you did seem to both be enjoying the discussion. <laughs> and and that it was, it was about, we have these two different things and how can we make what we're doing better by having open discussion about what we really are thinking and feeling. Yeah. And I think, I think, I hope this is something that we can always maintain. I think it really makes us strong. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hope so yeah. too. Yeah. So the first time, Judy, that I met you, we were all getting together. It was my first time getting together with CPM folks. And we were in Denver in 2015, I think. And you and I were working on a Tom's problem together. And I could, (laughs) just to begin, it's almost like you had your strategy for Tom's problem. You said, okay, where are we going to start? But what I really loved and appreciated about the whole process of working with you is you kept saying things like, well, what if we tried this? What if we tried this way? And that opened up my idea of teaching, my idea of helping students for sure. So that was a fun memory for me. Well, that was one of the, I mean, one of the really cool things that Tom kept doing was contributing problems that were totally unfamiliar. So if I was asking, what are you thinking? What are we doing? It was easy to do because it was totally honest. (laughs) I had no clue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Any more than anybody else. Yeah. As to how to get started. And so that was kind of a wonderful, a wonderful thing because he could pose a problem that you would feel comfortable with saying, well, I really don't have anything to bring to this. How, what, mm-hmm. what can we put together and how can we use that? So cool. 
Yeah, I feel very fortunate to work at a company that was started by what I consider to be some fairly brilliant math-minded people and who really brought their skills to the table and really worked together to make something really pretty impressive, I think. And and we weren't afraid to be to do things differently. Mm. I think that well, I hope that maybe one of the things that that I do contribute is that if you have a different way of looking at something, then you should let everybody know because even if it's a really stupid idea, it'll get other people thinking in different directions, and they may not deal with your idea, but something better will probably come out of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous message. Thank you. Yeah. As you look at where CPM is now, did you have any idea it would ever become some something as, you know? I honestly had no idea that it would become anything like what we've become. And that's the power of all the people that have been involved. I did, I wrote into our second proposal a... <laughs> they asked for an evaluation of the project. And I said, basically... Because most projects, they never follow up on the evaluation. And the evaluation, if you really wanted to do it right, really takes half your budget. So you can't do the project, you know, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. can't get started. But my suggestion was that if they really wanted to evaluate CPM, they should see how many teachers and students were using the program 10 years from 1989. Mm. Not ever having an idea that it would be so widespread by 1999. Mm-hmm. And we far exceeded my dream by then, even. <laughs> so is there anything else that um, we always like to kind of say, you know, anything else that you think that our listeners should know, something else that teachers using CPM or, you know, other people should know about CPM or about you or about how it started? That's hard to say. One of the things that I, I do know is that every chance I get to actually dive back into the materials and use them. And rarely do I get to use them with students, but often with teachers um, or new teachers or student teachers to have mm-hmm. them work on the tasks. That the one thing that I, I still haven't learned and I still have to work on is how to bite my lip and listen <laughs> <laughs> to what the students are coming up with because there are some tasks that I've used repeatedly from CPM and every time I use them, I get a new addition to methods of solution. Nice. And when I try to anticipate where they're going to go, I have to realize that I have to not hold back. I don't know all the ways yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yet. Yeah, I love that. And I guess that's I guess that's maybe my favorite. I was thinking the other day, just in a conversation on the way home, what keeps me really excited about math education is that the opportunity to help someone sometime during the week to make a new connection and to see that happen. And often it's a new connection for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Judy, for being with us today and taking time out of your very busy schedule, your very busy retired schedule, sounds like. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We really appreciate it. And we appreciate your time and all of what you've done for CPM over the years. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you. Wow, what a great uh, conversation with Judy. That was amazing. I love talking with Judy. Mm-hmm. She has such great stories. Yeah, and she's she's just done so much. 
for over 30 years now with CPM and from the very beginnings, I just, I love her attitude about it. There were two things that stood out for me. One, I loved, and I, and I know she says this because I, I've heard her and actually with Tom say this, like, this might be a stupid idea. Yeah. Like, and they, and they just, you know, but she's like, even, even the ideas that are, nope, we're not going to do that. Da, da, da. Yeah. But it helps us examine and think about what we are doing, or it gives us, oh, let's try this. And then even like in a math problem, yep. we're like, well, that didn't work, but now we know some more information and it helps us get to something else. And I think organizationally and in our society that if we get too attached to all the idea, we can't, I can't give an idea unless I know it's right or good. Yeah. Then we don't have those conversations that lead us to the better ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. It, make, it makes me feel better about things as well, because I always feel like I do give a lot of ideas and not very many of them are good. So that's, <laughs> I'll, I'll continue to do so. <laughs> you should. Yep. You should. You should continue to give bad ideas. Yeah. It also reminds me that, I mean, I tell teachers in my, in my learning events that they're going to make bad choices because they don't have enough information. Mm -hmm. yep. And again, it's my job to help them make better bad choices because you're still going to make a bad choice because you don't have enough information. That's right. I loved also her comments, which basically get back for me about curiosity, mm -hmm. curiosity about how kids think or how, you know, in her case, teachers, but how people make sense of math yeah, and how they make sense of ideas, I think is, is just so interesting. And, and to just be able to ask kids questions and say, okay, well, why, why do you think that? And then as they explain it, sometimes I'm like, whoa, pretty cool. That's really cool. I was doing some site visits this week and mm -hmm. that, that happened for John's Redwood problem. Oh, nice. Instead of drawing a, a linear graph, somebody had drawn a bar graph for each year. And I had never seen that. The teacher had never seen that. Mm -hmm. It was just a fun moment to say, wow, I've never seen that before. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Why did you do that? Yeah. How does it make sense? It was fun. Yeah. I love that. And, and that we're never done learning. Mm -hmm. So true. I mean, unless we choose to be done learning, we're never done learning. Agreed. For more information and to stay connected with CPM happenings, you can find CPM on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our intro music is one of the very talented contributions that you can find on pixabay.com. Thank you, Julius H., for your creation. Join us for the next episode of More Math for More People. What day will that be, Joel? It'll be November 16th, National Button Day. I was looking in my button drawer the other day. I have a lot of buttons that I've collected over the years. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I do have them available. Should I ever need a button? I did learn some things about buttons. I learned that near means buttonhole in French. I also learned that buttons these were put there to stop soldiers from wiping their noses, so Napoleon didn't like that, and Napoleon ordered that brass buttons be placed on the sleeves of all military uniforms so the soldiers would be discouraged from wiping their noses on them. That was kind of funny. And then in the 1300s, Europe was so button crazy that the church started calling them the devil's snare, and it was probably because...